GM, it's the world of bonds. It's Monday the 18th of October 2021. This is for professional investors only, never ever investment advice. Lots of talk now about yield curve flattening and its presumed link with recessions, especially in the United States. Since the start of September this year, the US yield curve has flattened relatively uh, substantially, a trend shown in microcosm by Friday's price action where the five-year US Treasury bond yield was up eight basis points to 1.13%, 30-year uh, yield was up just three basis points to 2.04%, and the 30 years have been doing relatively very well lately. Um, since the 1st of September, five-year bonds are up 35 basis points and 30 years up just 10 basis points. So this is uh, the yield curve flattening. And the question is, is inversion when long-dated bond yields fall below short-dated bond yields a reliable prediction of recession? And the answer is uh, undoubtedly yes. I think it's pretty much a certainty that when twos, tens uh, goes negative, you end up with a recession in the following six months or to a year. But flattening is no prediction whatsoever. Um, So the only prediction is when you get the actual inversion, the actual flattening doesn't mean anything in terms of future predictions. Obviously, you can't get um, an inversion without a flattening to start with, but you need the actual inversion historically to get a recession. Having said that, doesn't mean there won't be a recession in 2022 and you know there are some signs of things to be worried about especially I guess the high oil price today which could lead to um, lower economic growth next year but it's not really in many people's forecasts at the moment and I don't think this yield curve move yet helps us predict it but something to keep a close eye on and it is pointing to a slowdown in growth if not a recession I guess. Otherwise, last year, US break-even, that's the inflation um, expectation, they finally started to move upwards and catch up with those in the UK and the EU. You know, we'd seen pretty much a flat line at around about 2.5% in US five-year breaks uh, for most of the summer, effectively, whereas the UK had pinged up above 4% and uh, German five-year break-evens had got uh, not quite to 2%, but heading in that direction. So we're at 2 and 3 quarter percent now in, in the US break-even inflation rates. The dollar's a little bit weaker, except against the yen, which is a lot weaker against everything. Uh, for reasons I'm not quite sure I can explain, um, it remains the cheapest currency in the world, pretty much on a kind of PPP, Big Mac index style measure. Credit is stable. Emerging markets is generally a bit better from its weakness, apart from Turkey. Turkish lira was 3% lower against the US dollar on the week. Uh, President Erdogan fired three central bankers by decree who'd been opposed to, to rate cuts. Um, Erdogan's economic theory is that higher interest rates produce higher inflation Um, so we can debate that one another day so today i'm going to talk about the latin american debt crisis of the 1980s and uh, there's no real reason for that except i found the fed reserve history website page which has kind of shortish essays about a number of economic incidents and i thought i'd read up on the latin american debt crisis of the 1980s so you can find it online, uh, Fed Reserve History um, is, is their website. So I just want to give a quick history lesson because I found it quite interesting, something I, I knew about but not probably enough. So this is 
about the defaults that Latin America saw after the 1970s and really um, into the 1980s, which has been known by some as a lost decade for Latin American growth. So the 70s, as we know, was a period where there were two big oil shocks caused by war and caused by a cartel of OPEC being created to control supply. And so in Latin America, um, this produced significant current account deficits. Oil was priced in US dollars and uh, Latin America was a big, big oil importer. Obviously, um, we, we do have Mexico and Venezuela that produce oil um, today in large quantities. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was the case in the 1970s, but nevertheless, as a, as a block, Latin America was a, a very big oil importer. And as um, oil price went up, that produced higher current account deficits. The contrary, the counterpart to that was that the oil producing nations in the Middle East had big, big surpluses. And the US banking sector apparently started to intermediate between the two. So it would take in dollar deposits from Middle Eastern countries and lend those deposits effectively to Latin American countries. And so uh, in 1970, there were um, $29 billion of banking exposure to Latin America. By 1982, that was $327 billion of exposure. And this was despite Federal Reserve warnings, and you would expect this, the Federal Reserve blog to, to mention this, but um, by the start of the 1980s, the nine biggest US banks held Latin American debt worth over 176% of their capital. And if you look at less developed nations as a whole, the emerging markets as a whole, that was nearly 300%. So huge, huge exposures just in those nine banks alone. Now, at the start of the 80s, you'll remember Paul Volcker came in with a reputation and action as an inflation fighter. You know, before that, inflation had got out of control. I think we can all acknowledge that. There were other reasons for that than central bank activity, but central bank inactivity was certainly one of those factors. So Volcker raised rates aggressively above the rate of inflation, provoked a global recession in 1981. Uh, as well and that slowed growth down globally um, and rates started to rise for the borrowing that Latin America was doing so their interest payments went up and so in 1982 Mexico told the Fed, the IMF, the US Treasury etc that it wasn't going to be able to service 80 billion of its debt and as a result of that and other you know the similar factors taking place across the developed market, developing markets rather 16 Latin American countries, 11 other emerging markets had to restructure their debt. And this also meant that um, there was a reduction in overall lending and Latin America went into a deep, deep recession, causing in 1982 the FOMC to have to take action to kind of bail out the economies of some of uh, these countries. So they coordinated central bank activity around the world, um, involved the IMF, involved commercial banks to set up what was an international lender of last resort programme to bridge loans to Mexico and other countries. And in return, this is the, the controversial bit and kind of created this reputation that the IMF still has today and that you see in Greece when it went into Greece, that it has uh, an agenda and that agenda is structural reform, which includes things like eliminating budget deficits, um, trying to boost exports to earn US dollars and repaying the debt. So they, they are trying to help everybody, but it 
always feels like the austerity program, the structural reform program kind of piles bad news onto emerging markets and other countries just as they need the flexibility to, to borrow more and spend more and invest and so forth. So structural reforms meant to kind of very capitalist free market uh, introductions of uh, structures within the economy and also cutting spending. So austerity spending fell disproportionately on things like health, education, infrastructure spending, etc. And as a result, Mexico and others had negative growth rates, unemployment went through the roof and they had what's been known, as I said before, as a, a lost decade. And so in some ways you could argue that the, the negative growth rates made it even harder for the emerging markets to service debts and kind of perpetuated the problem. Um, So, yeah, Um, it became clear that those debts weren't going to be repaid as a result and banks started to provide for loan losses. So by the end of the decade, by the end of the 80s, um, they needed to do something about it. Uh, You know, the banks were in big difficulty. Uh, Treasury Secretary Brady, you've heard of Brady bonds, which was uh, one of the things he did to help emerging markets restructure their their debt. Um, he argued that what was needed was a permanent reduction in principle. So it was no no use just cutting interest payments or giving debt holidays or so forth. You had to write off the debt, and so about a third of it was uh, 61 billion of the debt was uh, forgiven. Um, uh, but there were more economic reforms required. The Fed concludes in its paper, in, in a section it called Lessons Learned, that um, you know these banks were warned that the, their debt was that the debt that they'd uh, taken on from Latin America was unsustainable and they were overexposed, but nothing was done, um, and that's a lost, big lost opportunity. The Fed also argues in this modern paper that the, the US seemed more worried about the solvency and soundness of the US financial system than it did um, about the risk of moral hazard and so forth. And this is something that comes up time and time again. It comes up around the global financial crisis and the idea that banks were too big to fail. You know, these were nine big money centre banks that may have may have failed. And as a result of that, they were allowed forbearance. So, you know, the regulators didn't make them hold as much capital as they did before the problems. Uh, there were weaker regulatory standards throughout. And I think that the Fed's, this Fed paper implies that that's led in the future to higher risk-taking than there would have otherwise been. So this lesson, this lesson around Latin American debt crisis of the 1980s, has set the scene for US banks and global banks to be more reckless in the future by by delaying loss recognition, etc. It's weakened market discipline, set a dangerous precedent uh, for the world and created the idea of this too big to fail banking sector. So quite an interesting paper. I enjoyed reading about Latin American debt crisis um, and the strong dollar that effectively caused it. Have good weeks. Catch you soon. Bye.